Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders as we continue our cooperation with the Whitechapel Society 1888 in bringing you the guest speaker talks from their bi-monthly meetings from the East End of London, England. What you are about to hear is April 2016's excellent presentation by author Angela Buckley on the topic of her latest book, Amelia Dyer and the Baby Farm Murders, followed by a question and answer session. A PDF of the slideshow that accompanied the talk is available at this podcast episode's page on casebook.org, and I encourage you to download it to follow along as it contains some really great images. We were provided this recording in two separate sections, the main presentation coming to us from Steve Ratty of the Whitechapel Society, but the Q&A was from a different source, so there will be a noticeable change between the two parts, and now you'll know why. So, without further ado, let's turn it over to Tony Power in the Chamberlain Hotel for Angela Buckley on Amelia Dyer. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the April 2016 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. Uh, And I'm greeted by a room full of people, and it's great to see you all coming out tonight. Um, So, thank you very much for coming. Great to see you. I'd also like to welcome all of you who are listening to this online. I'm not sure if you're aware of the Rippercast podcast. It's excellent if you get a chance to read it. And we record these meetings and they publish it for us. So you're very, very welcome wherever you are in the world listening to us this evening. And to give you an idea where we are, we're in the heart of the London East End. To the northwest of us is Mitre Square. To the northeast of us is Osborne Street and Brick Lane. And hovering over us is the Church of St. Botolph's Without, which is known as the Prostitute's Church, because back in the day, the ladies of the night used to paramble around that church looking for custom. So the, the church hovers over us. Um, for those of you that would like to find out more about the Whitechapel Society, then please visit our website. You can Google the Whitechapel Society or go to www.whitechapelsociety.com and there you'll find out about all the speakers that we have lined up. You can buy books that we've produced and also you can join online. So tonight, ladies and gentlemen, it is a dark and murky night here in the East End of London and there's a dark and murky tale to be told. Tonight, we welcome back Angela Buckley. Those of you that came to our meeting in October of last year will have heard her talking about uh, Jerome Caminada, who is a a detective from her hometown of Manchester, um, and she's written a terrific book about him. I have one here in front of me uh, called The Real Sherlock Holmes, The Hidden History of Jerome Caminada. It's a terrific book. If you get a chance to read it, it's well worth a read. Um, So from talking about somebody who is a hero, tonight's subject is very different. Um, Tonight we're talking about um, Amelia Dyer, the baby farmer. Now, if you don't know what a baby farmer is, Angela will be about to enlighten us. Um, She's also written another book about this, uh, Amelia Dyer. It's called Amelia Dyer and the the Baby Farm Murders. Um, The last time she was here, which is actually the first time that we were here in the uh, Chamberlain Hotel, she had to compete with the Rugby World Cup going on in a nearby bar. So hopefully it'll be a lot quieter for her tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a big Whitechapel welcome to Angela Buckley. Thank you very much. Before I uh, 
delve into this very dark subject. As I'm from Manchester, I tend to operate on both sides of the law, so we're on the wrong side at the moment. I'd just like to thank you very much for having me back. This is the perfect place to launch this uh, new book, which came out last week, and it's lovely to be amongst so many wonderful friends. Um, last time I was here, I talked about my dodgy ancestors. I'm not going to mention them today. Uh, instead, I'm going to talk about my dodgy neighbourhood, and here it is. Oh, hang on. Let me just... There we go. I've got a pointer thing, which is very exciting. Okay, so this is Victorian Caversham, and this is the scene uh, where, these, where these crimes unfolded in 1896. And just to show you a little bit about Caversham, Caversham doesn't look very different now, actually. Um, so we've got the River Thames down at the bottom there. And, um, and then lots of little streets and these, these little roads here, terrace houses, were where the um, workers from the Huntley and Palmer factory uh, lived, which is just down here. And you've got uh, Piggott's Road is along there, which features in this story. You'll hear about it later. I live up here, actually, on the edges of Caversham now. Um, having lived in Manchester and London for, me or for many years, I now settled in the quiet suburbs of Caversham. Not by choice, I was compelled, but it's fine. <laughs> Um, just outside of Reading. The mill here, this was the last working mill in Caversham, still working in 1896, where they used to grind corn. And the river itself was extremely busy. It was a very, very important waterway from London, from the Pool of London, taking cargo upstream to the other cities and towns in the west of England, southwest of England, and also ferrying farm products and other, other items back down to the capital. Um, there were lots of businesses on this area, uh, dyers, tanners, parchment makers. It's much busier then than it is now. It's very sleepy now indeed. Or it wasn't until I started talking about this story locally. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so, so this story takes place around this area. This is King's Meadow. Remember that, because that comes up quite soon. And uh, we're now going to have a nice picture of it. Hang on. Here we are. Here is Victorian Caversham. Now, at the time, it was also a very important tourist destination. So holiday makers used, and day trippers used to flock from London to Caversham to enjoy the fresh air and the boat trips and the eel pie, which is a local delicacy, um, and the picnics. However, in the spring of 1896, this beautiful idyll, rural idyll, was shattered forever with a very gruesome discovery. So the, um, this is the Clappers Bridge. So on the 30th of March, 1896, a bargeman called Charles Humphreys was towing a boat of ballast up the River Thames. He just passed the bit where the, uh, the, Kennet, the River Kennet flows into the Thames, and he was coming along past King's Meadow, which was at the bottom of the other map, and, um, and coming just up to the Clappers Bridge. Now, as he neared the bridge he spotted a brown paper parcel um, just floating in the water, just close to the King's Meadow side. He and his mates, because there were two of them in the boat, slowed the barge down to take a, a closer look, and they, they leant over the side and hooked the parcel towards them. Now, when they got to the shore, they opened the parcel, which was, it was in brown, wrapped in brown paper, and it was tied with string, and the, uh, the Charles Humphrey's mate opened the parcel and cut through some layers of newspaper and flannel to reveal a child's foot and part of a child's leg. 
Now, um, Charles Humphreys, recoiling from this devastating discovery, left the parcel in, the, in, the, in charge of his friend, and he raced off to the police station in the centre of Reading to make them aware of this dreadful thing that they discovered in the river. Um, so he got to, into Reading, and the local police officer on charge uh, and obviously took down all the details, and they rushed back to the river... And, um, and then they took the, the, the parcel to the mortuary, to the Reading Police Station in the centre of Reading, to the mortuary, where they later opened the parcel properly and exposed the full body of, of a baby girl. Now, this baby girl was between six months to a year old. Um, she was wrapped in newspaper. She'd been wrapped in newspaper and linen and obviously wrapped in the parcel. And she had... Um, white tape around her neck which was knotted under her left ear so it was quite obvious that she'd been strangled and uh, the wrapping that she the wrapping that she was wrapped in, the, the parcel she was wrapped in provided the first clue but before we get there we're going to just very briefly tell you a little bit about Reading Borough Police because it sort of sets the scene a bit better so Reading Borough Police had actually been formed 60 years earlier on the 21st of February 1836. It was one of the earliest borough forces in the UK after the creation of the Met in, in uh, 1829. Back in 1836, there were only 34 officers in Reading. There were two inspectors, two sergeants and 30 constables, which made about one constable for every 600 inhabitants or so, which was fine actually at the time. Uh, in 80, by 1896, uh, the situation had changed slightly and the number of officers had risen to around 60, but the town, because of local industry, had risen to 60,000. But it didn't really make too much of a difference because it was an area of low crime. And, um, in fact, it was mostly petty theft that they'd come up with before now, come up, to, come up against before now. And um, in the Reading Police Occurrence Book for the weeks leading up to the discovery of the baby in the river... The only two crimes that are listed in any detail is that one is a theft of a silver watch and the other is a theft of a fat sheep from a sheepfold. <laughs> so you can imagine their shock when this sort of gruesome package arrives in the river. And one of the, um, one of the newspaper reports after this, you know, during the time when, when all these babies were being found, also uh, commented that, bizarrely, commented that Reading had the tallest constables in the whole of England. I don't know where they got that evidence from, but that's what they said. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the man in the middle there... I'm not going to use my pointer. There he is. Um, here he is. Uh, this is Chief Constable George Chewsley. Now, he was in charge of Reading Borough Police in 1896. He'd been in charge of, of the police for a decade there. This new police station, uh, which is Highbridge House, which is still there in Reading, it's now a solicitor's... Um, office. It's very it's beautifully clean at the moment as well. It looks much better now. Um, it's right in the centre of Reading, just over the River Kennet. And um, when it was opened in 1862, the local press complained that the public gallery of the new uh, magistrate's court, which was also housed there, was inconveniently narrow for the obese of the population. <laughs> I don't know who he was talking about. Um, but, um, yes, yeah, so it was opened in 1862, and Chief Constable George Chewsley was in charge. And he led the investigation into this mysterious death of the baby girl, along with his two able colleagues, Detective Constable James Anderson and Sergeant Harry James. And here they are. 
There they are, all, th all three of them with their incredibly flamboyant moustaches. <laughs> this is actually, the uh, picture in the middle there um, is a carpet bag. That features later in the story. This baby, the first baby was found in a parcel. So, um, so there they are. So they have, um, it's, uh, so this one's Sergeant James, just to show you. There's uh, Chief Constable Chewsley in the middle and James Anderson on the end. And it's um, DC Anderson who provides the first clue. So on the faint, on the, on the wrapping in which the baby was found, there was um, faint writing, and it revealed, when he took a closer look once the package had dried out, it revealed a Midland Railway stamp with Bristol Temple Meads and a date from October 1895. Also, it had a name and an address, very conveniently, and that was Mrs. Thomas of 26 Piggott's Road, Caversham, one of those small roads that went up from the river on the map. Um, now, James Anderson took the parcel to Reading Railway Station to find out, see if he could find out any more information about the name on the package. And the clerk at the railway station looked in the entry books and found uh, that the parcel had come through the station from Bristol the previous October, as it suggested on the package. But the clerk had a very important piece of vital information. Mrs. Thomas, his real name, was Mrs. Dyer and she'd moved from Pickett's Road to Kensington Road, which was um, another street of terrace houses on the other side of Reading, on the west side, along a big thoroughfare called Oxford Road. It was a very densely packed, densely populated area of Reading, full of workers' cottages, um, mostly, again, working in the Huntley and Palmer uh, factory. So armed with this information, um, DC Anderson and Sergeant James race over to Kensington Road, only to discover that uh, Mrs. Dyer has left for London. So they leave, uh, they put a watch on the, uh, on the house um, and wait till she comes back, uh, which she does uh, a couple of days later. So here is the house as it looked at the time. The Kensington Road is still there. The house is still there. I try not to linger too much if I walk past. And, and if I ever do a tour in Caversham, um, we'd have to be very, very subtle because people do live there. <laughs> so on the, on the 3rd of April, once Mrs. Dyer had returned to Reading from her travels in London... They sent a decoy along, a female. They didn't have female officers, obviously, then, so they probably sent, probably sent um, I think, they probably sent D.C. Anderson's wife, who went to ask about an adopted, uh, having a baby adopted. And in the evening, when they went back, they met Mrs. Dyer, and um, she was rather surprised to open the door and find two police officers on her doorstep instead of a woman wa wanting to adopt a baby. They did a search of the premises... And um, they, which yielded some very interesting things. There was a great quantity. It was a clean house, but very sparsely furnished, two up, two down. They, um, they found massive quantities of babies' clothing and pawn tickets for more babies' clothing for local pawnbrokers. They also found vaccination certificates and um, birth documents for babies and letters from parents. Now, there were people living in the house, um, there were seven residents, including Mrs. Dyer at the time. There was uh, an elderly lady called, who they referred to as Granny. We'll see some pictures of these characters later. Um, she was Jane Smith, her real name was, and she was known as Granny. She, worked, she lived with Dyer to help look after the babies that they cared for together. There were three children in the house at the time, 11-year-old uh, Nellie Oliver, a 9-year-old Willie Thornton, and a baby. 
And there was also a lodger. I mean, they picked, packed a lot of people into this two up, two down. There was a lodger, Mrs. Chandley, and she had two daughters. And also Mrs. Dyer had two cats, of which she was particularly fond. And she looked after them much better than she ever did anybody else. <laughs> so, um, so they had a look around the house. And whilst they found these, these interesting items, they also uncovered some tape from a workbox, which was very, very similar to the tape that was found around the baby's neck. And in fact, also a neighbour had told them that, that she had lent some string to Mrs. Dyer on the morning of the discovery, but when the baby was discovered, uh, which was very similar to what was wrapped around the parcel. Now, as they were searching the house, the officers became aware of a very strange smell, like a sort of a sort of meaty stench. So they followed their noses literally upstairs to the bedroom and um, found a locked tin box where the smell was coming from. Mrs. Dyer said it was old, musty clothes, but um, obviously um, I don't think it was. And in fact, when the officers opened it, they, they thought it bore traces of a corpse. I haven't actually been able to find out what they found in it that said there were traces of the corpse because there's no police records, but I guess maybe there was some residue of some kind, I dread to think. Anyway, so, um, so that was enough evidence to arrest Mrs. Dyer and take her off to Highbridge House Police Station. And this was the photograph taken of her um, on the day that she was arrested. And we're delighted to have Mrs. Dyer with us this evening as well. You must, you must meet <laughs> later. <laughs> it's face to face. Actually, it's eerily similar. <laughs> <laughs> so she was arrested for uh, on a charge of willful murder um it says on the charge sheet that the baby was called helena fry and um although they thought that's who the baby was it, it the, the, the evidence was relatively flimsy but they arrested her on the charge of murder of helena fry obviously without dna testing is virtually impossible to link up these babies very easily with their parents so the next day, 57-year-old Amelia Dyer um, <laughs> was, uh, went to the magistrate's court for the first time, charged with the willful murder of Helena Fry, and this was her response. I do not know anything about it. Uh, it's all a mystery to me, um, which was, yes, did that quite a lot. So she was remanded on custody, in custody while, um, while Chief Constable Chewsley started to make his investigation. Now, before I move on with the investigation, I want to tell you a little bit about baby farming. Okay? So, in the 19th century, really only the latter decades of the 19th century, so the second half of the 19th century, uh, baby farming was very much in evidence throughout Victorian England. Now, life at this time was particularly difficult for unmarried mothers, and any young woman, who, a single woman who became pregnant was likely to be thrown out of home, uh, likely to be sacked by her employer, and literally shunned by society. It was a particularly difficult issue for domestic servants, and um, many of the women in this story were actually domestic servants, because often they were exploited sexually by their employer, and then as soon as they fell pregnant, they were chucked out, and they lost their homes and their livelihoods. So it was very, very difficult. The Poor Law Amendment Act to change things so that legally the responsibility lay with the mother, not with the father. So the fathers at this point got off scot-free and the women were forced to manage on their own. Many women actually did take their own babies' lives at that time, but um, I'm not going to talk about that today, but they, they were driven to very extreme measures. 
One option was to go into the workhouse, as I'm sure you know. Uh, that, was a, that was the dreaded prospect for anybody in the Victorian period. And for a young woman, um, a, a pregnant woman, she would, she would be separated from her child anyway. So the only other real viable option, if you had enough cash, was to place a baby with a baby farmer. And these are mostly women. There were some men, but it was mostly women. And this is the Salford Weekly uh, News, which said they were women of dissolute habits and without shame. They weren't all that bad, but many of them were. They were basically Victorian childcare. So they advertised in the local press for, to adopt a child for a weekly fee, which was roughly about five shillings a week. Or you could pay a one-off payment of ten, roughly £10 for a full adoption. Now, £10 was just under um, the annual wage of a domestic servant, so it was a tremendous amount of money. Now, the sad reality for these poor children um, was that, generally speaking, not always, these children were just left to waste away. We've got a couple of babies there, actually. They look a bit unhealthy. Um, they, were, they were starved. I mean, this is quite common practice. It was legal, and it was completely unregulated. So they were left just to waste away, just to starve, and obviously deprived of nutrients. They, just, they literally just, just faded. And on top of that, um, the baby farmers, as well as parents used to do this, I have to say. It's very tempting. Now it's just cowpole. Used to give them a Godfrey's cordial or an opiate to put them to sleep. We've got some over there. That's right. So they would drug the babies with Godfrey's to, um, to suppress their appetites and to keep them quiet. And that was very common, actually, with all working parents. It wasn't just to get a decent night's sleep, not just the baby farmers. <laughs> So it was really grim, and when these children did die, um, if their deaths were recorded, which wasn't always the case, it was recorded as marasmus. And some of my ancestors' children died of marasmus, which just means literally wasting away, because they didn't really know, the medical authorities didn't know or care what had happened to them. And because of the very high infant mortality rate in Victorian England at the time, they largely just went unnoticed. So, so this was the case. So Amelia Dyer was effectively a, a baby farmer. Now, they had uh, networks, these baby farmers, um, and Amelia, they had intermediaries. So they would pass children along the chain to different people, each taking their cut, which was essentially human trafficking. As I say, it was legal. So Amelia Dyer had known associates. She was, um, she was connected to Margaret Waters, who you might have heard of, one of the Brixton baby farmers. And also, when her place was searched in Kensington Road, some letters revealed that she may have had an accomplice a bit closer to home. And it was this man, Arthur Ernest Palmer. He was Amelia Dyer's son-in-law. He was married to her natural daughter, Mary Ann, uh, known as Polly Palmer, or Dyer. And they lived in North London most of the time. And when the, uh, in the letters revealed that they were connected, the, the Met went to search his house in Willesden and discovered that he too had the, uh, the kind of the uh, accoutrements of, uh, of baby farming. So he had the clothing and he had the pawn tickets. They, had, they did have an 18-month-old baby who they, whom they'd adopted called Harry, but there was way too much clothing um, to, for one child. So... Constable, Chief Constable Chewsley issued a warrant for the arrest of, of Arthur, Arthur Ernest Palmer, but before that arrest could carry out, a further gruesome discovery took place in Caversham, which was about to change the course of the investigation completely. 
Now, I must thank Rob, actually, for this fabulous picture, um, Rob Clack, for, uh, which I think he sent, sent it me on Facebook for my birthday last year. <laughs> perfect, perfect gift. So, um, they had, in so by this time, we're now on the 10th of April. So, Amelia Dyer's been arrested on the 3rd, and obviously a few days before that, the first discovery was made. Two more babies were actually arrested, um, were discovered during this period. But because there was no evidence, the coroners just returned verdicts of found drowned. So this was the problem that the police were up against. But on the 10th of April, um, a labourer, Henry Smithwaite, very hard to say after a, I've only had water, so it's fine. Henry Smithwaite was dragging the... Um, dragging the river under the instructions of the police. He was actually in a boat, but um, according to the press, but there you go. And I don't know whether he... I don't know if that's supposed to be the police, I think. Anyway, as he was going along, uh, dragging the river, as he went under or towards the bridge, the Clappers Bridge, under the bridge, he found um, a package submerged about 12 feet under. And in fact, when they drew it up, they discovered it was a carpet bag. Now, the carpet bag was tied around with string, but it was gaping at the top. And lay on the top, well, they removed a bit of paper, well, the police did, and they found a baby girl who was about four months old. They took the carpet bag to, back to the police station, and on further inspection, they found some bricks in the, in the bag, which had been used, obviously, to weigh the, uh, the package down. And underneath the baby girl was actually a baby boy. So that was a 13-month-old boy. And the boy had the white tape around his neck, knotted at the left ear, and the girl bore marks that she didn't have tape around her neck, but she obviously, the, the, the medics believed that she had been also been strangled. So this changed the game completely. And um, so the police now used the letters um, in the, the found in Kensington Road to try to build a picture of who these children might have been and to piece it together. I have actually got pictures of them, uh, which is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, these are the actual pictures that were taken uh, by, by the police at the time. Um, and in fact, you can see the brown paper behind them. Um, and that we've got the babies here that look a bit healthier than the ones on the, <laughs> the, ones on the photos. These, these belong to the Thames Valley Police, and they're on display permanently in the museum, the, the, the real ones. So the babies were Doris Marmon and Harry Simmons. And so now that they'd, they, now they'd managed to identify these babies, because the guardians had come forward, the police were finally able to build a case. And I just want to tell you a little bit about the backstories of the two babies. I'm going to move the, move the screen on, away from distressing images. So the first story is that of Evelina Edith Marmon, in brief. She was a 25-year-old barmaid from Cheltenham. And when she fell pregnant, uh, her landlady fortunately allowed her to stay, but she knew that she wouldn't be able to look after a baby on her own and continue working. So when she saw um, an advertisement in the local paper in March 1896, she made the heartbreaking decision to part with baby Doris. Doris was four months old. She entered into correspondence with a woman called Mrs. Harding, who obviously threw the advertisement, and Mrs. Harding offered to adopt baby Doris and to welcome her into her, her lovely, idyllic rural home, obviously for a fee. And eventually, um, they made all the arrangements, and Evelina met um, Mrs. Harding on the platform at Gloucester Railway Station, and handed baby Doris over with um, a package of baby linen. 
She wrote to um, Mrs. Harding several times afterwards, and the last letter that she, that, that, that she wrote inquired after Doris's health because she'd had vaccinations done previously. And also, she asked uh, Mrs., Mrs. Harding to give the baby a kiss from her, but she never heard back. And the next thing she heard was when the police knocked at her door and she was brought to Reading to identify baby Doris. And, of course, Mrs. Harding was Mrs. Dyer. Dyer used about seven or eight different aliases, so it was very complicated. And these are the words that uh, poor Evelina Marmon said when she came out of the uh, mortuary, having identified her baby, and, and she then had to identify uh, Mrs. Dyer in, an ident in a parade. The other victim was Harry Simmons, and um, he's, his guardian was called Amelia Hannah Sargent. And she was an undertaker's wife in West London, uh, Ealing in West London. And she'd adopted or she'd offered to look after Harry when he was one month old because his mother, who was a friend of hers and widowed, very complicated, uh, went to work abroad as a lady's maid and obviously she couldn't take a child. So she gave Harry to Amelia Sargent to look after, to get my Amelia's right. And, um, but she had a massive family. She already had six children of her own. So after a while, she decided that um, she would have uh, Harry farmed out. And she also saw an advert in the, in the local paper and arranged an adoption, originally with, initially with Mrs. Harding, but then Mrs. Harding told her she was really called Mrs. Thomas. Of course, she wasn't called Mrs. Thomas. She was called Mrs. Dyer. They arranged to meet under the clock at Paddington Station. I don't know about you now, but every time... I, I came in in Platform 1 this evening. Every time I stand near that clock now on Paddington Station, I have to think of poor Harry Simmons. She arranged to meet them under the clock on the 1st of April, 1896. And she handed Harry over uh, with the money and with a brown paper package of clothing tied up with string. And these was her words, actually, when she identified uh, Mrs. Dyer. So the case was building really, really well now. And uh, so we've got, the, we've, got the, we've got the babies identified and we've got the guardians. And also Chief Constable Chewsley had also been piecing together Mrs. Dyer's background. So Amelia Dyer was born, very briefly, Amelia Dyer was born Amelia Hobley, and she was born in Bristol. And she lived for most of her life, actually, in Bristol, even though I've been talking about Reading. She was one of six children, at least, five older, one younger, and her father was a master shoemaker, and he was actually, it was a very respectable family. They paid for all the children to go through school at a time when there was no national education, and life was quite stable in the Bristol area, lived in the Bristol area. Um, she did suffer quite a lot of loss in her, in her childhood. Two of her sisters died in infancy, and also when she was 11, Amelia's mother um, died also. In 1861, she married George Thomas, so one of the names at least was real. He was a master carver and gilder, and they lived in Bristol for a while. It's alleged that she had a natural daughter with him, but there's no evidence to suggest it was her daughter, but you can never really tell in these cases. He, um, they, they settled in Bristol, and Amelia trained to be a nurse, and it was at this point in the 1860s that she met a midwife called Ellen or Eleanor Dane, and it was Ellen Dane who told her all about the baby farming business. So at this point, Amelia Dyer sets herself up as a baby farmer, probably around 1868. Her husband died in 1869, and she married again quite soon after to William Dyer, and he, he worked in a vinegar factory. Um, they had at least two natural children, probably more. One was Mary Ann, who later married Arthur Ernest Palmer, and the other was uh, William Samuel, who doesn't come into this story at all. <laughs> he just disappeared into the army. 
So they settled in Bristol, and she set up as a baby farmer, and she posted these adverts. These are her adverts. These are on, on dis- the originals are on display in Thames Valley Police Museum. She also ran a house of confinement where she would take in unmarried uh, women who were pregnant, help them through the birth, and then she would offer to adopt the children. Babies came and went. They lived all the way all around in different places in Bristol. Babies came, babies went. Nobody really noticed either way. Her activities first came to light in 1879, so she'd already been doing it by a decade by then, when there was... um, Couple, two inquests into the deaths, mysterious deaths of babies who died in her care. I'm not going to go into the detail of those, but she was uh, hauled into court, and unfortunately there wasn't enough evidence to uh, convict her, and she was convicted later on a minor charge of um, falsifying a death certificate. Because she used to register these, ba- often register the babies in her own name as well, that's why it's always so confusing to know who, which children were hers and which weren't. So she got away with it. However, in the 1890s, we get closer to the end of her crimes when they came to light, things started to become extremely precarious for Amelia Dyer. She's still in Bristol. And it it appears, according to reports, that Amelia Dyer was addicted to laudanum. Now, obviously, this is an extremely common drug anyway in the Victorian England, and practically everybody was addicted to laudanum. But when, when the inquest had taken place in 1879... She appeared to have attempted to take an overdose of laudanum so that she couldn't appear at one of the one of the trials. And also throughout the early 1890s, she was actually admitted to lunatic asylums three times. Now there appears to be a reason for this. A governess who had given birth in her house of confinement had been reunited with the father of the child that she'd given, subsequently given up to die for adoption, and they'd come together to try and find this child. And they came repeatedly over a number of years, sometimes bringing the police with them, trying to find out what had happened to their baby when they'd left her with Dyer. Now, she led them a bit of a merry dance, and she sent them off to different places. But every time they turned up at her house in Bristol, even though she'd moved around, she would have a breakdown. And the doctors would be called in, and she would be certified and sent to an asylum. She was there three times in Gloucester Asylum and Wells Asylum. Each time her daughter was kind of stage managing it. She also tried to commit suicide twice more. She uh, tried to cut her own throat, which sounds very drastic, but in fact she'd only caused a few scratches, so it wasn't considered to be very, very serious. And she tried to drown herself in a pond. So, um, so she was in and out of the asylums all through that period. And finally, when the parents gave up, um, she, uh, she was able to come back to her baby farming. She always picked up the baby farming again. And then as soon as things got difficult, she would... Um, well, the people believe she shammed it. But uh, as soon as things got difficult, she'd have the breakdown. Now, in 1895, before she came to Reading... Uh, things changed slightly for, for, for Dyer in Bristol. Her daughter and son-in-law had moved. They left, they'd left. And she was estranged from her husband, William Dyer. She never lived with him again. So she had to go to the workhouse. And she went to Barton Regis Workhouse, which apparently was quite a pleasant place. And it was here that she met Granny. See, we've got a picture of Granny. Oh, there she is. It's the only picture of Granny. So this is Jane Smith, and she was 74, and she was a resident in Barton Regis Workhouse at the time. She was innocent. She didn't know anything about what was going on with Amelia Dyer, really. Um, She agreed to move in with her, 
um, and help to look after the babies. And she used to find it extremely difficult when the babies came and went. When this photograph, which is from the Berkshire Chronicle, was taken later to show Granny, because she did lots of interviews with the press and with the police, those were her words. She was, she was really fond of the babies, and she was devastated when she discovered what had been going on. So we're now in 1895, and um, the... Debts, they, they accrued debts, they went to Cardiff and they moved around and they accrued some debts and then they ended up in Caversham. Now the Palmers came with them, the, the, the son and daughter-in-law initially came with them to Caversham. So this is the summer of, eight, of 19, 18, 1895 and they moved into Piggott's Road, which is a little road uh, near the river. And they stayed there for a while, not very long. Uh, there were various people living there. There was uh, Granny and... Uh, and then there was Willie Thornton, that's Willie there. He actually originated apparently from Henley, and then he'd, his parents had got him taken to London, and Dyer had collected him from London to, for adoption. He came to them while they were at Pickett's Road. And the key thing about Willie is that he brought his belongings with him in a carpet bag, and it was that carpet bag that he later identified. Um, it was a, they, didn't, they weren't in that part of Caversham very long. Again, there was lots of coming and going. Babies were adopted by both Dyer and her daughter. At least one baby died there, and um, she was buried... I've got the death certificate. She was buried under the Palmer name, so she was d- buried as Palmer's child. She wasn't Palmer's child at all, but uh, Arthur Ernest Palmer is the father on the death certificate. She died of Marasmus, and she's buried in Caversham. As it approached the Christmas, um, they moved... So the Palmers went off to, uh, first they went to Warminster, to Arthur's hometown, and then they uh, went to North London, where we find them at the, at the climax of the story. And, um, and the others moved to Kensington Road on the other side of Reading. They were joined by Nellie Olivia. Um, she was from Plymouth, and um, she was sent by herself, completely on her own, on the train when she was adopted by Dyer, and Dyer met her at the station in Reading. So Willie Thornton, he testified quite a lot in court in the later cases, and he described, um, often described the experiences of living with Diane. He was extremely fond of her. He called her mother, as did Granny, called uh, Mrs. Diane mother. And uh, the only disturbing memory that he had was at Kensington Road when he, he also experienced the stench that the police had later followed, and, but, but this time Willie had... Followed, the, followed his nose too and, and fa- tried to find out about the stench and he'd found uh, a brown paper parcel in a cupboard from which it emanated and then later that parcel disappeared. So we're starting to piece together a story really of how everything's coming together and the, what, the crucial time is just after the arrest or just, sorry, just after the discovery of the first baby. So 30th of March is the discovery of the first baby. 31st of March... Mrs. Dyer travels to uh, Cheltenham to meet Edith Marmon and collect Doris. Now, instead of going home to Reading, she goes to North London to see her daughter. And finally, uh, it was on the last appearance in court in Reading, everybody had wanted Mary Ann Palmer to testify in court, and she finally came to the dock, and she explained exactly what had gone on in those crucial days leading up to Amelia Dyer's arrest. On the Tuesday evening, she'd open the door, the knock at the door in Wilsdon, she'd open the door to find her mother on the doorstep with a baby and a carpet bag. She invited her mother in, and later on, she left her mother in the front room on her own. And when she went back into the room a bit later, Mrs. Dye was standing by the couch and stuffing the carpet bag underneath the couch, 
And on top of the couch was a brown paper parcel. Now, Marianne didn't see the baby after that that had come, arrived with her mother, reportedly belonging to a neighbour. She didn't seem to mention, she didn't seem to be very concerned about it, it has to be said. But the next day, um, the Palmers and Mrs Dyer went to Paddington Station, met Mrs Sargent under the clock and received baby Harry. They took him home to Wilsdon and they placed Harry on the couch under the shawl. It was actually the shawl that Mrs Dyer always wears, the black and white check. And um, Mary Ann <laughs> Palmer noticed that the baby didn't move. And, uh, but they just, he was just under the shawl. Every time she went to try and check he was okay, Mrs Dyer pushed her out of the way and said, just don't worry about him. Mary Ann offered to provide him some food and drink, but again, her mother wouldn't have any of it. That evening, uh, the three adults went out to Olympia for a little stroll. And when they came back, baby Harry was still in exactly the same position. So there was nothing to stop him rolling or falling off, but he was just completely still. Mrs. Dyer spent the night in the sitting room, locked the door, and the next day, the baby had disappeared. Now, Mary Ann doesn't say very much about this in court. All she says is that her mother didn't, didn't, wouldn't answer any of her questions. And she says a quite strange thing. She says that when she's sweeping later that day, she noticed a brown paper parcel, which in hindsight, under the couch, in hindsight looked like the shape of a child's head. But she didn't say anything at the time. So uh, she, didn't, she was suspicious when her mother asked her for some bricks at lunchtime. But um, again, she didn't do anything about it. And, um, and she said later that she'd noticed some tape missing from her work box. So it doesn't take, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's obviously what happened. And later that day, so the 2nd of April now, Mrs. Dyer left with the carpet bag and returned home to Reading empty-handed. So it all kind of connects up. Now, there were several... Um, there were several babies found in total over that period. Six, at least six, possibly seven babies were found. And there were several hearings in Reading Magistrates Court as the police tried to build up the case. There were lots of inquests as well. Arthur Ernest Palmer was charged with being an accessory after the fact, and, but he was later discharged. He was then rearrested for having abandoned a four-year-old girl in Devonport the previous year, and he was sent down for that, but that happens later. Marianne Palmer was also arrested at a very late stage for being an accessory before the fact in, a, in another case, one of the babies that I haven't talked about this evening, uh, and she was on remand um, at the same time as her mother in Reading Prison, and she faced trial in Reading um, later on in the summer. So eventually, we got to the point where on the 21st of May, 1896, Amelia Dyer is tried at the Old Bailey. Serious stuff now. And um, the trial took two days. Um, we had all the witnesses from all the hearings that had gone so far. So we had the mothers or the guardians. Evelina Marmon told her story. Hannah, uh, Amelia Hannah Sargent told her story. A witness put Amelia Dyer in the place at King's Meadow on the morning of the first discovery. The matron from Reading Prison testified. Um, they all lined up and they all gave their evidence. Mary Ann once again gave her evidence in very clear detail about... Um, exactly what had, had gone on uh, on those days in Willesden. The second day was pretty much taken up by a very long debate about Amelia Dyer's mental health. 
there were several doctors, all the doctors who had um, examined her on the various visits to the asylums and some uh, extremely expert, experienced medical experts from London, including the prison doctor from Newgate and two very eminent doctors from Guy's, all gave their diagnosis in great detail about what they thought and they completely contradicted each other. Nobody had any clue, really. Some of them said she was insane and some of them said she wasn't. So there's no, there's no uh, consensus of opinion whatsoever. So on the second day at 8.30pm, the jury finally left, retired to uh, consider the verdict and it took them just five minutes to return a guilty verdict. As the judge, it was uh, uh, Hawkins, Judge Hawkins, donned the uh, black cap to uh, pass the death sentence, there was silence outside the court, which was the first time during this whole period there'd been silence, because it was so late, because every time she'd been in court, there'd been howling and hissing crowds, but that night was silent. Um, So... The, week, the first week beginning the 8th of June, 1896, was a particularly bloody week in the 200-year-old history of the Old Bailey, or Newgate. Um, so on the Tuesday, we first had the executions of the three Muswell, oh, the, sorry, the two Muswell Hill murderers, Alfred Milsom and Henry Fowler, alongside another burglar who'd committed a murder, William Seaman. And the, it was the, oh, I think it's probably the only triple execution. So the, uh, the, the Muswell Hill murders were on either side. Seaman was in the middle. And expert hangman and uh, the chief executioner, James Billington, uh, dispatched them. And the following day, he was going to do the same thing for Amelia Dyer. The, um, the bell tolled, the chapel bell tolled at 9 a.m. the following morning. And Dyer was led painfully and slowly the few steps to the scaffold. She was... Um, asked if she had any words to say by the governor and she didn't, she just said no I have nothing to say, she thanked the warders and the governor for their kindness as Billington placed the noose around her neck and the uh, cap over her head the chaplain intoned the solemn words and uh, Billington drew the bolt and Dyer plunged to her death and was buried in the precincts of the jail and this was the comments, actually, from the coroner. She, there was an inquest on her body an hour later, and this was, this was the rather chilling words of the coroner, which I particularly like, if you can like those sorts of things. 120 years later, exactly, Mrs. Dyer's history is very much tightly, tightly woven into, into the history of Reading. And in fact, there are many, many inhabitants, I'm not, obviously not from Reading, but there are many inhabitants from Reading who, who say, say that their mothers or their grandmothers used to warn them when they were children that if they misbehaved, old Mother Dyer would get them. And lots of people um, say that around there. Also, um, there are plenty of stories of ghostly sightings along the pathways, which just look like this today. They just look exactly like they did in 1896. So along the pathways leading down, leading down to the Thames and to the Clappers Bridge, she has been spotted many times with her long, dark cloak uh, walking towards the Clappers Bridge. Local legend also suggests that Granny runs from the workhouse across the road to Kensington Road, searching for her lost babies. I haven't seen any, but I, have, I don't go down there at night, so it's okay, not surprisingly. <laughs> um, at the time, obviously, the Victorian residents of Caversham were completely horrified and traumatised by these terrible events that unfolded in their very quiet place. 
And they uh, carved um, crosses in the wooden handrail of the Clappers Bridge. It sadly has been, it's still there, but it's been, the structure itself has been replaced. It's now an iron sort of structure. It's not quite so atmospheric. But it does mean that there are sadly no memorials at all now to the numbers, numbers of victims, could be in the hundreds of victims who perished at the hands of the infamous Mrs. Dyer. So that's the end of my sad and dark tale. Um, have a book, <laughs> which is out last week. Um, I'm selling those today for, if you want to hear more of the story, I'm selling those today for £3.99. And I've got some pennies as well. Um, if you want to sign up for my newsletter, you can sign up on my um, website there. I'm also very happy to share other people's news from the dark world of Victorian crime as well. So very happy to feature on the newsletter to feature any other writers and historians and events. I try and, try and keep as many, many things going around as possible. So do, do sign up to that or on my Facebook page, uh, Victorian Super Sleuth. So I'd like to thank you all very much for um, sharing this story with me tonight and uh, it has been a huge pleasure thanks to Jackie for uh, inviting me back again uh, and to Rob for the pictures and also want to say just before I um, I think we'll have a break and then some questions I think uh, is that I'm also delighted to uh, to say that I'm going to be joining Ricky at the at the uh, chat the Ripper conference in November to talk more about baby farming uh, I shall be bringing in some more some dark stories from London I think as well at that point the date's beginning of November isn't it is it, what, 5th or 6th or something? Something something around November. It's <laughs> great, isn't it? <laughs> I just thought somebody might like to come. <laughs> okay, thank you ever so much. And uh, do say hello to uh, Mrs. Dyer herself. <laughs> now, now you know her history. Thank you. That was great. Thank you so much, Angela. That was really, really interesting. I'm sure that you've all got a lot of questions that you might want to ask. Um, as Angela said, there, her book is actually here, and I'm sure that if you ask her nicely, she'll sign it for you, Join, joined up writing and everything. Um, we're going to take a quick break here, about 15 minutes. It's 20 to, 20 to 9 now. Uh, so let's get back here for 5 to 9, okay? And then we'll have some questions, and um, we'll go from there. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thames up as far as Wapping 
and, and the police have been trying to find out where those bodies have come from and they believe they come from Ferdrup River and after Amelia was caught they decided that they had probably been Amelia's victims. Yeah. And Bristol, were victims in Bristol as well, but they were never anywhere connecting them up. So it could be, I don't know, estimate 30 years of, of baby of baby farming. So, well into the hundreds. No, I haven't got my head around working out because it's too complicated. It's, it's hard enough to actually work out which babies are coming and going, even in Reading, actually. But um, I think she probably is our most prolific serial killer. Oh, is that the achievement, doesn't it? <laughs> Okay, thanks so much. I know you've got a lot of questions there. Can I ask, just remember, we're going to be recording this and putting something on the internet. So just wait until the microphone gets to you before you actually ask the question that we can all hear it. Yeah. Jackie. Jackie. Hello. Hi, Jackie. Um, she did kill the little boy, the little girl, the nine-year-old and the eleven-year-old. He's hanged and escaped. Will you? Uh, no, no, they survived. Why? They were, um, they were probably used as decoys. So sometimes the baby farmers. Would obviously uh, expedite the uh, end of babies, but they also kept, generally kept older children, um, either to provide a more long-term income because it takes longer to kill them, if you see what I mean, or to provide decoys um, should the authorities uh, come visit. And in fact, in Kensington Road, they did have the NSPCC, and also in Bristol, who visited. So it would be proof that she was looking after them properly. They were both uh, recovered by their parents. Um, Willie was taken away by his mother, and I think um, uh, Nellie's from the major range, as well as she's farmed out again, I don't know. So the second question is, when, when do you think her first murder was it? Because obviously she's only been caught because of the Doris and Harry. I mean, well, I think what's difficult to really, for me anyway, you might have a different view, but what I find difficult is it's very hard to know when she actually started strangling babies, because up till then there were lots of babies coming and going. The deaths, the original suspicious deaths, were generally were wasting away sort of illnesses rather than strangulation. So there's no evidence that she actually strangled any, I don't think, before she came to Reading. I don't even, I mean, he's a bit more of an expert on baby farming than me, but I've not found any evidence, and you, you haven't either. So, so um, yeah, it's a difficult one, that, because um, what made her suddenly start strangling, it's quite different, is it, to allow somebody, I mean, without going into the detail, it's quite different to allow a small child to waste away than it is to actually speed them up. So maybe that those were the only ones that were strangled. Do you think it was the cost of a funeral that put in the lot, so she was killed with a family Yeah, they didn't always even, yeah, I mean, she may, I don't know where she buried, I mean, some of them clearly were buried, because there were children buried in the Havisham area, and I wonder whether she, you know, she may have dumped bodies, she may well have dumped bodies, and she probably did before Reading, as you said, in, in the Thames and in Bristol, but they may have died of more natural causes. I suspect she's probably been dumping them in the water certainly for a long time. Whether she killed them more violently, I don't know. It's all a bit mysterious, unfortunately. Eliza, a question for you. 
Well, that's a bit of a mystery, really, because she she didn't have very much when she when she, she her stuff was auctioned and it didn't yield that much money. I mean, one of the things she would have had quite considerable legal costs um, initially, but she was unrepresented, and then she would have provided legal costs, I think, for Palmer because you could only have a, a lawyer if you were on a murder charge at the time. I guess there was rents, but they didn't live a very um, luxurious lifestyle, so it's very difficult to know where the money um, went. Some people say that it was stashed away and that it was possibly recouped later, but I can't imagine it going to the bank. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the money just seems to slip through her fingers, really. Part of the laudable wasn't very expensive, and caring for the kids wasn't very expensive. So it, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery. I mean, we don't really know why she did it. We don't know really whether she, whether she, you know, whether she did it entirely for money, whether she was a cold blood killer, or whether she, you know, whether she did have mental health issues. It's virtually impossible to tell. Thank you for an interesting talk. Thank you. Um, can you tell me how long were these mothers supposed to pay? Was it a weekly stipend? Yeah. They, they could, yeah. Uh, well, they could pay for a weekly, a weekly fee. And in fact, many, many working parents used to do that. Not just people who wanted. I mean, it was literally childcare. So I guess. But then children went to work much earlier, so it wouldn't have been for very long. I suppose if you think about um, where I'm from in Manchester, they used baby farmers a lot for the, the women, the families who worked in the factories used baby farmers. So even when there were two parents, they just used to, you know, pay the, the, the five shillings as childcare. And I guess it was probably up to I don't know what age they might have gone into the factory and they might have gone into the factory at five or six. And, and did they send it by postal order? I presume they were quite long distance. Um, they, they did do sort of a postal order type thing, yes. I mean, I think there was, there was lots of travelling about more than anything, so they met on railway stations, so I think most of it was done in person. So that they couldn't go and visit to see how they were done well, they didn't often know where they were because they all used aliases, and in fact, the parents used aliases in the in the in these sort of scenarios, not the ones where there was working families. But if they actually gave the child away, they used aliases as well. So there was no real paper trail, and they often didn't. It's so different from today, um, so they often didn't follow up at all. You know, they just literally paid them and, and, and farmed them out. So it's kind of two different types of scenario, really. There was the working families who used to use it, baby farmers as childcare, so they would have been local. Women who they just left with for the day while they went to the factory until the children were older, and then there was the, and then there was ones the particularly single mothers who then had to literally farm them out. So you saying that rich people would pay? So can I jump? Hang on one second. I'm just going to bring the microphone to you. Sorry. Go, go ahead. Okay. So the rich people will pay for the babies. The babies to be cared for, or the babies. To yeah, so if you're poor and you had a baby and you were giving it away, you're getting paid for it. So are they not doing you a favor? Why would they pay for it? Or would they just give them away and get paid to get rid of them? Yeah, they were paying to get rid of them, but it wasn't. So they get paid to get rid of them just because they killed them, or you can find problems with the It was the people who were getting, who were get, getting rid of them who had to pay for the service, if you like. So they're basically paying people to get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hope that they're yeah. getting rid of exactly. exactly. They're paying in the, because there's no adoption at the time, they're basically paying somebody as an intermediary to pass them on to another family. Presumably that other family would have to pay as well, but of course a lot of the babies didn't get that far. So it wasn't, it wasn't the very
very wealthy people either. It was people, it was working people. So presumably if you were wealthy, you just had your staff to look after them, so you didn't really need to. Do you think there would be a more sinister aspect to the case of, um, well, here's my problem, would you just get rid of my problem? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, some mothers actually killed their own children. I mean, that's, that's very common um, in, in that time, was women, you know, literally strangling or poisoning. I mean, there are horrendous stories, poisoning their own babies and putting them in rivers or burying them somewhere, literally just to get rid of the problem uh, in desperation. So uh, it's, it's so difficult because it's such a different time, isn't it, to today? I've got a bit of an administrative question. You said, um, well, Caversham. It was Caversham part of Reading in those days. It was on the North Bank, was it actually? No, it was Oxfordshire. So, was, well, was it under the jurisdiction of Reading? Police? No, very good comment. Yeah, it didn't turn to. It didn't become. Um, that's a very good question. It didn't become Reading until 1911. <laughs> ah, but the Thames. So, although she lived in Oxford. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the Thames, where it was found, there must have been a that, that must have been in the Reading area, and Kensington Road is in Reading. So where she was arrested was in Reading. So that bridge, Clapgate Bridge, or whatever it's called, Clappers, Clappers yeah. Bridge. Is that on? Um, what side of the river is that on? So it's down river from Reading. So is it north or south down? It, it crosses between the two. That may be difficult with directions. So it goes down to the south. It goes okay. a lot to the south bank. One more question. So you ready? Thank you so much for this talk, Thank you. Did any of the police officers go back to any of the previous addresses and find out about any children there? Well, they did link up with the Bristol police and they worked quite closely with them. Um, and there were reports of certainly NSPCC officers going around to the Bristol, one of the Bristol properties, and there's lots of stories about what might have happened there and investigations with neighbours. I did read somewhere that they that they dug some bodies out of a garden in Bristol, and there were babies found in the River Severn quite close to where she lived, but none of it. They didn't really link it all together, I don't think. But they certainly did uh, travel round. They used and they used um, telegrams, telegraphs quite often to uh, communicate. But there was no evidence, not real evidence. Okay. Um, are there any other questions? Um, I've just got one question, actually, to wrap up. No, I'm using one. Um, this practice of baby farming, when did it actually stop, and what caused it to stop? Did, did this case have any impact on, on getting it? Regulated. Yeah, it's a very good question. I didn't mention that talk actually. There were eight uh, convictions for baby farming or baby farmers who were executed. There were another three, I think, off the top of my head after Amelia Dyer. And then you've got legislation coming in. So the first lot of legislation was the amendment to the Infant Life Protection in 1872 after the, Bricks, the Brixton baby farmers, Margaret Waters and Sarah Ellis. And then you get a constant stream of legislation where they realise that it's still not protecting children. And I think it's 1908 and the Children's Act comes in. So gradually, through this period, fostering and adoption becomes regulated. They have to uh, apply to the authorities, they have to be registered. But these cases are what, what led to the legislation for the early 20th century. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. That was terrific. And thanks for hanging around and taking those questions. Oh, no, my pleasure. Um, thank you, gentlemen. A big round of applause for Andrew Buffett. <laughs> and don't forget,
And that was the April 2016 guest speaker at the meeting of the Whitechapel Society, Angela Buckley. Her brand new book, Amelia Dyer and the Baby Farm Murders, is available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback. And she also manages the Victorian Super Sleuth website, newsletter, and blog at AngelaBuckleyWriter.com and on Facebook at Victorian Super Sleuth. I would like to thank Ms. Buckley for giving her permission for us to bring her talk on Amelia Dyer to you. And as always, we also thank the Whitechapel Society for allowing the listeners of Rippercast inside their meetings for these unique presentations. More information on the Whitechapel Society can be found on their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you can join up, find a list of their future talks, and subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal. And we are a podcast sponsored by the website casebook.org, where it's available to stream or download, and you'll also find us in the iTunes Music Store. And there's a discussion group on Facebook where you'll also find us by searching RipperCast. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.